You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. If you have a Bible, we are in John chapter 11. If you did not bring a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. Just smack the person's head in front of you, say, I'm grabbing a Bible behind you, and they'll appreciate that. John chapter 11. It's a, it's a pretty familiar story. It's the death of Lazarus. You've probably heard of it uh, if you've been in church any amount of time. What does Jesus do to Lazarus? Raises him from the dead. This is the, the uh, coup de grace, so to speak, of all of Jesus' miracles. He healed the blind. He healed the lame. He made the sick well. But here he's going to raise a dead man back to life. Two times, two times in this, Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are going to say the same exact thing to Christ. And they're going to say, Lord, if you had been here earlier, Lord, if only you had been here earlier, our brother would not be dead. I posed this question this week in my email, and I said, how many times have you felt that same way? Lord, if you'd shown up sooner, we could have been spared the pain and the suffering. Lord, if you'd shown up sooner, we could have caught the cancer earlier. Lord, if you'd shown up sooner, I might still have a job. Lord, if you'd shown up sooner, we might still have our house. I prayed and I waited on you, Lord, just like you told me to do. I quoted the scriptures that said you have good things in mind for me. I quoted Psalm where it says that nothing bad, no pestilence shall come to me. And yet the sickness came, and the evil came, and death and the pain came. So Lord, where were you? Anybody ever felt that way? Yeah, every single person here. The brave ones raised their hands, the rest of us just was like. That's Mary and Martha say those exact words to him. Lord, if you had been here, And then it compounds it and it makes it worse when our friends look at us and say, what are you doing? You believe in a God you cannot see or touch? You say you hear him in your thoughts? And yet I'm looking at your life and it appears to just be completely falling apart. You need to get your act together. You need to find a plan B. And we begin to hear those thoughts and the truth is we've kind of had those thoughts ourselves And what happens is a spirit of unbelief begins to take place and take root in our hearts. Lord, where were you? Where were you? John 11, chapter one. There was a man named Lazarus and he was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This is the Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who would pour perfume on the Lord and wipe his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. You could tell he must have had a special relationship with Lazarus because all they needed to say was the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, He stayed where he was two more days. 
and then said to his disciples, let us go back to to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you want to go back. Remember this story from last week? This is literally the story they're talking about. They're like, we just left that place. They had circled around you with rocks and were ready to kill you for blasphemy. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. That's what sick people are supposed to do. They're supposed to sleep. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep, so he told them plainly. (laughs) No, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us all go that we may die with him. Thomas, such a narcissist. No, calm down, bud. (laughs) You'll see what God's doing here. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. I want to pose before you this morning that no matter who you are, how long you've been a Christian, how long you've been going to church, no matter what you've done in your life, good or bad, that every single human in here on this day, not I used to struggle with it, but every single person in here struggles with the spirit of unbelief. Every single one of us. There is not a single character in the Bible. None of the greats, the Moses, the Abrahams, the Davids, the Josephs, the Pauls, the Peters, even the Thomases, struggle with a spirit of unbelief. And what is a spirit of unbelief? Well, we like to say I'm struggling with a spirit of pride. I'm struggling with a spirit of lust, greed, Anger, envy, bitterness. No, those are all just fruits of a spirit of unbelief. Do you know that? Unbelief is like the root system of a tree that grows up and bears fruit. And out of it comes the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh. And it all stems from unbelief. A few weeks ago, I talked about tithes. I talked about the church and talked about where the Christian church was in the world with giving and what we do. And we showed what a low number it is that the church receives through tithes and offerings versus what is actually made. We know that it's not that Christians don't make money. We make hundreds of trillions of dollars in any given calendar year. But it's that we don't give. Well, why don't we give? Because we don't believe. It's as simple as that. We don't believe. We don't believe that when it says, I will fill your your barns to overflowing, your your vats to overflowing with wine, I will support you, I will uh, sustain you and uphold you completely. I am your God. We don't believe it. And then he says, all things work together for good, so it's okay that you're where you're at now. And we say, I want to believe that that's true. I want to believe, but the truth is we don't believe it. And so we either hoard money away or we protect our time 
and we say no to things that God is calling us to do and to help neighbors and other people around us. And all of it stems from one spirit. In fact, it's the same exact spirit that got us in the position we're in today with Adam, which is the spirit of unbelief. God really didn't tell you that you would die, did he? You know why he told you not to eat of that tree? Because then you'll get to be like him, knowing good and evil. And there it was. The spirit of unbelief has been sown into the heart of man, and he began to think, yeah, that must be what it is. God doesn't want competition. And if I eat of that fruit, I'm going to be like him. Spirit of unbelief. In Jesus' entire ministry for three years with his disciples, what spirit did he constantly fight? Unbelief. Every miracle, every sign, every lesson, every time he took them somewhere and would teach them, whether it was allow the children to come to me or he's standing in front of the mountain in Caesarea of Philippi and he says, who do the people say that I am? Every single time with his disciples, he is fighting a spirit of unbelief and he is trying to build in them his spirit because he knows without it, without it, they will be washed to and fro with every teaching and every thought that is brought before them and they'll have no solid ground. So Jesus says, I like how the NIV says, he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. So let's go to him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Isn't that an incredible faith? Martha displays an absolutely incredible faith there. I know the messenger came back, and the messenger said that our brother would not die, and I know in the natural we buried him, and I watched him die, but I also know that you are God, and so if you wish to bring him back, you can. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know he'll rise again, that there is a time that is coming and the resurrection of the last day when all the saints will rise. You see, even in that moment, as strong as Martha's faith was, she still did not believe that in that moment Jesus could walk over to the dead body of Lazarus and make it rise. She said, I know, I know, one day I'll be with him. And that's the hope you and I have. That's the hope we have when we lose a family member. We know that on this side of glory, we're not going to see them again, but there will come a time when we will see them. There will come a time when all souls, all God's children are called to him. And that's our hope. And this is the hope that Martha was speaking of. She says, I know he will rise again on the resurrection at the last day. And this is what Jesus says to her. And this is absolutely earth shattering. 
So I don't know if you've ever read it like that, but I want you to, I want you to feel this here. I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who's come into this world. Jesus, why weren't you here? My brother's dead. And how does Jesus respond to her? He gives her truth. He responds to her question of why weren't you here by giving her a truth. The, the most complete, sincere, true truth that you can ever hear in life. He gives her the truth. In the midst of her grief, her pain and her weeping, he speaks truth into it. Because her unbelief is saying, I know he said my brother will live, but he's dead, and so I'm, I'm trying to work with this. I'm trying to juxtapose my feelings against this Messiah. And Jesus speaks truth into her situation. He says, Martha, this is who I am. I am the resurrection. I am that life. Now watch this. After she had said this, which was, yes, you are Messiah, the Son of God, who's coming into this world. She went back and called her sister Mary. She said, the teacher is here, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet even entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had heard, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Now I want you to notice something fascinating here. Who, when Jesus visited their house earlier, is the one that sat at the feet of Jesus? Who, which one was the one that sat at the feet of Jesus? Mary. Now I want you to see, I want you to see how important this is and how loaded this chapter is. There is a debate in Christianity amongst the churches right now on the duality of God's completely being 100% human and 100% God. And he said he was 100% both at the same time, fully human, fully God. Now there is a belief that his divinity, that the divine nature of God did not come upon him until he was baptized and raised out of the water, right? And then the dove was seen and the voice of God said, this is my son whom I am well pleased. And there's a belief that that, that, that is when he sort of received God's spirit. And then there's this belief that also says, no, he was never fully human because he had a divine mind, and so the brain was not like yours and I, my brain, it was divine. And so he was, there was, he was in a human body, but everything that makes the body work was divine. In this verse, what you're going to see here is that this is something as John writes it out is not, cannot be made up and would not be made up. It would not make sense if you're trying to talk about this God to make this up, but you're going to see how he responds here. And you're going to see how he is fully God and fully human and how you and I need him to be both. We need him to be both. 
Martha hears that Jesus is coming and she runs out to meet him. Runs out to meet him. Mary stays inside and waits to be called upon. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Word for word, the same thing her sister said. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now this is fascinating. Because when the first sister, Martha, came to him and said those same exact words, he responded to her in truth. He responded to her with a truth statement, a difficult statement, especially for someone who's grieving the loss of their brother, but he responded in truth. And that's what Martha needed. Martha needed that truth. She needed that reminder, and you can see that from how she responds back to him. And then we see Mary come out. She says the same thing. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And in this moment, we see Jesus' heart broken, and it says, and this is, I don't want to get off from where I'm going with this, but he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. How many of you have read that over and over before? Go back to that, uh, verse 33. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. What does that make you think of? Like, Becky, who's leading this team to Haiti, the first time she went, she was deeply moved in her spirit, and she was troubled by the things that she saw there. And so now she's going on her fourth trip to provide aid and the message of Christ, right? Do we all understand that? Just a head nod. That is what we think of when we think of deeply moved and troubled. That is not what was going on with Christ here. He was not deeply moved by the plight and the weeping of these people, and he was not troubled by it, so he's going to do something to help them out, but that's how it reads, unfortunately. But there's no debate that the Greek word that is used to describe how Jesus is feeling here is a word often referred to in, in, for animals, and it's this primordial scream. It is a bellowing. That's actually a better translation. He bellowed in rage. And you think, well, that's odd. That's a little different than being deeply moved in spirit. That's sort of, that's also not very classy or culturally appropriate in that moment to just scream out in rage and sorrow and then begin to weep. You see, not only is he fully God and can speak truth in an exact moment and pierce through lies, but he's also fully human. And he weeps with us and he mourns with us and he sheds tears with us. And we need a God who is both. Because if I have a God who only speaks truth and does not understand or know my pain and my suffering, then you have a very rigid, a very sort of the conservative, legalistic God that says, here's all my truths, go and follow them and do it right. But on the flip side, if I have a God that only cries with me 
that won't deliver truth when it's difficult, that won't speak into lies that I'm believing and draw me out of them, then I have a pansy, worthless religion. And I have nothing that will stand the test of time. And I have a contradicting God too because that God will cry with me when evil befalls me but yet won't tell me what's good and what's evil. So I have a God who will weep with me and I have a God who will bring truth to me when I'm in my deepest suffering. Where have you laid him? Come and see. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But then some of them began to say amongst themselves, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? This seems to be a common question, doesn't it? If you are so good, God, and so powerful, why are you allowing such wicked, evil things to happen to such innocent people? Currently in our world, the, one of the most wicked things is the sex trafficking of young children and young girls across the world. And you just, you look at it and you see it and you see what's going on with it. I've got a friend of mine who he and his wife are getting ready to go over to Bali to be able to minister to girls who have been pulled out of it. And it just breaks your heart and you say, God, how could you let that happen? Some of these girls were probably believers and they, and they relied on you and they trusted in you to keep them safe. And they've had the most horrific things any human could have come upon them. Where were you, God? Why'd you let that happen? Jesus, verse 38, once more, deeply moved. Is that the right words? It's the same exact wording that was used in 34, deeply moved in trouble. Once more. So after he's wept, you guys get this? He bellows out, he screams in rage. And then he weeps with those who are mourning over Lazarus' death. And then he walks to the tomb and he lets out again another just anger and rage. And he says, take away the stone. And Martha says, but it's been four days. By now, there's going to be an odor for how long he's been dead. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now move the stone I haven't answered this yet, but what or who is he mad at? Who is he mad at? Is he mad at God? <laughs> That'd be a little awkward. Isn't that who we get mad at when we pray and our prayers aren't answered? Is we curse God? And we say, where were you? And we get mad at him and we have rage. No, he's not mad at God. Is he mad because he was late? And he missed his opportunity to save his friend and so he's crying out in rage? No, we know that's not true. He's known from the beginning he's gonna raise him from the dead. So what is he mad at? He's mad at the same thing you and I should be mad at. And that is sin and death because it is not part of his design. 
and yet it is taking the people he loves, his children, and it is furthering a spirit of unbelief in who he is. And he is angry because at this funeral, he is going to raise the dead person. But he knows that there will be millions upon millions of funerals going forward that he won't raise. And, the, and he is righteously angry. Do you know that when you love someone, you have a greater anger when someone tries to hurt them? You know that? If you have children and someone tries to hurt them, tell me that there's not, it's like a different type of anger, isn't it? When I was a kid, we were in a Taco Bell, me and my brother and my, my best friend, and we went to the bathroom, and uh, my parents were sitting over at the seat, and didn't even notice it. We were little, and we got up, and we're going in the bathroom door, and these, all of a sudden, I get spun around. There's these three teenagers, bigger kids, and they're like, hey, you want some crack? <laughs> I had no idea what crack was, and they had this vial with, like, these white rocks in it, and I, we just, like, started to freak out because they were all around us. He's like, yeah, go ahead. Take this, dude. Take this, and I start sort of crying. My brother's crying. We're, we're sitting there at the bathroom to the men's room door open, and all I remember from this view, remember, I'm like this big, is watching this kid who's leaning down at me like this, just, and my dad had picked him up, thrown him against the wall, and then grabbed him by the throat and held him there while his loyal buddies ran out the door, and then other members in Taco Bell tackled them down and said, we got them, we got his buddies, and then we just went into the bathroom and cried for a while until my dad came in. You see, there was a righteous anger that welled up inside of him that day because someone was about to mess with one of his kids. Someone wanted to destroy one of his kids. And that same exact anger is the best way I can explain how Jesus feels in this moment. His death and sin is messing with his children. And he's gonna defeat it. He's gonna defeat it. He's gonna overcome it, he's gonna kick its butt, and then he's going to show us how to do the same thing. That is exactly the anger that Christ is going with. You guys see that? That's the righteous anger, that's the deeply troubled move. Because then he walks up, and they rolled the stone away, and he looks to heaven and he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they what, that they what? may believe third time so far. Third time Jesus' primary concern is to destroy unbelief, that they may believe you sent me. And when he said this, he called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Friends, Jesus' own disciples, right up until the night that he was betrayed, still struggled with unbelief, didn't they? Peter denied him. The others scattered and hid. They scattered and they hid. They just watched Jesus bring a dead man back to life. In fact, so did everybody else who was there. And you see, the other part that I believe that caused Jesus to weep, because Jesus isn't just weeping because Lazarus is dead. He knows he's about to bring him back to life. That wouldn't cause enough motion to weep. 
He knows he's about to bring him back. But he knows that when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he's signing his own death warrant. Because the very next verses are those who were there ran to the Pharisees and the rabbis and the teachers, and they began to plot to kill Jesus. That was it. It's one thing to, to heal the blind or the cripple. It's another thing to raise a dead person who we all saw die, who we watched put in that grave, and tell him to come out, and he comes walking out. We need to kill this guy. So Jesus knew that when, with Lazarus' resurrection, it would sign his death. And sure enough, he was right. But the disciples, they continue to struggle with unbelief. And yet, here's the amazing thing. Just about every single one of them would die in the name of the Lord, being crucified, martyred, killed because of Jesus. What happened? What changed? What, what took that unbelief that caused them to run and hide and filled them with so much courage that they would die for this Jesus? Well, one, they saw him resurrected, and they said, my goodness, not only can this guy raise other people from the dead, but he can raise himself from the dead. And two, in that upper room, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. You hear me? Sometimes we poo-poo <laughs> the Holy Spirit, but it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that you see that every single disciple would go forward and would die in behalf of the name of Jesus Christ. Stephen was martyred on behalf of the Christ. He was full of the Spirit because the Spirit comes in and destroys unbelief in our life. That's the purpose of God's Spirit. That's why you saturate yourself with the Scriptures, that you may know the heart of God as he knows your heart, that you may understand that he loves you more than you could ever give back. The chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go, long, go on like this, everyone will what? Believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they'll take away our temple and our nation. We must end this. Friends, I share this with you this morning to say this. If you're struggling with God, if you're struggling with promises that you feel that he has not come through on, if you're struggling with things like the questions 18 years ago around 9-11, how could God allow this to happen, or the, all of the school shootings that went on in the last few years, or the mass shootings that have gone on, you say, how can God allow these young, innocent people to suffer and to die, or maybe you've seen horrendous things in your life, or you've lost loved ones that you've placed in God's hands, and they've died anyway, and you've said, why? And like Martha and Mary, you've said, Lord, if only you've been here. Why doesn't he just snap his fingers? Why doesn't he just fix it? So you're asking God to fix injustice, right? You're asking God to fix things of this world that are evil, right? That's what we want, right? So you realize then when he snaps his fingers, you're gonna be gone too. <laughs> Isn't that humbling and sort of like, don't tell me that. I'm not one of those wicked, evil people preying on the innocent. 
I haven't ever done anything like that. I haven't ever kidnapped or stolen or murdered. Yes, you have. You see, whenever we sit and we try to sit in the, the throne of God and tell him how to run this world, tell him how to do it right, tell him how to be just, what we're doing is the same thing Adam did when he took bite of that, that tree, that fruit, is we're saying, God, you don't know how to do this. This shouldn't have played out like this. The situation should be different right now. So allow me to inform you on how it should go. Destroy everyone who's wicked. God says, okay, and you're gone. There wouldn't be a human left on this world, in this earth, if he were to destroy all of us who are wicked and evil. Do you hear me on that? Do you understand that? That what the church in America needs, what the Christian church needs, is more men and women who understand that we are not God, but he is. And if I, I can weep for a situation that makes me weep, and I have a God who will weep with me, and he understands. But I can also, and I've been asked to and commanded to, go into the darkness and bring light and speak truth and overcome the darkness in people's lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. He lets me do that, he lets you do that. We get to go be a part of it, we get to go shine a light. That's what Haiti and the team is doing there. They are just there to shine a light and we're using the excuse of medicine to do it. But while we're there, we wish to shine the light of Jesus Christ on people who have never heard of him. Because that's what we get to do. We get to take part in his resurrection. We get to take part in his glory and his righteousness, even though you didn't do a darn thing to earn it. And you can't do anything to earn it. Tell me, how much of Lazarus's resurrection was his doing? Was it like 99% Jesus and then 1% Lazarus because he walked out? How much choice does a dead man have to make? None. A dead man can make no choices. And so the Bible says that we're all dead in our trespasses to sin. Meaning, if there is any life in you, any goodness in you, it is there only by what? Grace. The grace of God coming in and giving you his righteousness, substituting it for our sin. When we say, Jesus, take it, he replaces it with his spirit. That is the story of Lazarus, that is the reminder of God's nature is both fully man and fully human, and it is the reminder that he is good even in the midst of evil, and you and I have a part to play. You have a part to play in this, to take the light that he's put in you and cast it out. Let's pray. Father, Lord, let not these words fall on deaf ears, Lord how you loved Lazarus, how you loved Martha and Mary. Your weeping and your tears were not for the loss. But God, you wept with us because you understood. You knew what was coming. You knew what was there. You know the sorrow we feel. And you're wanting to expose us to a joy.
and unspeakable joy in the midst of pain. We have to kill that spirit of unbelief. Would you kill that in me, Lord? Wherever you're at right now, I just take a moment. It's the end of service. We're gonna come to the Lord's table here and observe the Lord's Supper. But take a moment wherever you're at just to bow your heads before God and say, God, where does unbelief reign in my heart? Is it in my health? Is it in my finances? Is it in your goodness? I don't believe you're truly good. Is it in your existence? Maybe you've put your belief in the church and the church has hurt you or broken you. Maybe you put your belief in man and man has hurt you or broken you. Over and over, Christ is coming to destroy unbelief. And this morning, I believe he wants to do that. I believe there's some unbelief in your life. He wants to destroy it. If you let him, if you'd lay it before him, if you'd be honest enough to say, God, this is an area of unbelief I have, would you take it from me? Let's prepare our hearts to come to the supper of the Lamb last supper that Christ would share with his disciples. After three years of walking with them and teaching them and loving them and performing many signs before them, he sat with them and he said, here's one last thing. When you gather together, observe this in remembrance of me. And he gave them bread and they had broke it. And he told them, this is my body. This is my body broken for you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then he took the cup and he passed it around. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. This is the reason I am here, men. That my blood would suffice. That sin and death will be conquered and overcome. And you will be free, men. Partake of the Lord's Supper together, that's what you're proclaiming. That's why we ask that you have a relationship with Jesus, that you're a Christian if you're going to partake, because you're proclaiming his death unto your life. So I'm going to pray and bless this, and then you can get up. There's three stations up front and three in the back. Go to whichever one's closest to you, and then we'll you can take partake of it back at your seat together. There's two cups, and then we'll uh, close in worship together. Heavenly Father, we bless the bread and the juice, the body and the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. As we partake of it unto ourselves, we, we proclaim his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we long for the day, Lord, when we get to see the one who, fa who faced death on our behalf, true death, true lostness, true hopelessness, so that I might not ever have to experience that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us passionately. Thank you for being jealous for us. 
thank you for every man and woman who is in this room. It means you're pursuing their heart, Lord, and they found themselves here today because you are pursuing them because like that father, you have a righteous anger towards sin and you wanna see it taken out of their life. Bless the name of Jesus, amen. Go ahead, you can go to the station closest to you, thank you. And then we'll close in worship once everybody's had a chance.